last night. That was uh, a blast. So thanks for inviting me. And I don't think I've ever eaten better in my life while camping. Uh, Y'all are feeding us uh, very, very well, and uh, we're greatly appreciative of your hospitality and your kindness to us. Uh, And it is an amazing thing to be in such a beautiful place and be studying the Word of God together with uh, believers. Uh, Joe was uh, starting without very many people here and was uh, blaming the hikers uh, who were up there uh, missing the meeting. Uh, While he was complaining about the hikers, I got a phone call from a group of them at the top of Yosemite Falls saying, we are waving at you right now. (laughs) So we'll get them tonight uh, when they come to meeting tonight. Uh, We're going to continue now our exposition of 1 John. I will be reading from the New American Standard Version, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... And him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Do we like people who tell us the truth? Only if they tell us what it is we want to hear. A dear friend of mine at Emmaus Another prof uh, was substantially overweight. He got a kidney stone, uh, and he went to the urologist, and he says, it's killing me. It's worse than burying a baby. You've got to blast it to pieces and get it out of my body. The urologist, and by the way, it's the same urologist I have, and he grew up a pig farmer, so he's a, a blunt person. He said... No, you're going to have to pass that on your own. And my friend said, no, doctor, you have to understand, I'm going to burst apart if you don't blast this into pieces so I can pass it. He says, I can't do that. And he says, why? And he says, if I tried to put you on my table, you'd break it. If I tried to send enough energy into your body to break it apart, the lights in the hospital would dim. He said, you need to lose weight. 
Now, just to be fair, last time I went to the doctor, I noticed my blood pressure had risen a few points, and he says, it's not dangerous yet. You just got to watch this. And I said, well, what should I do about it? He said, lose 10 pounds. <laughs> we don't like people who speak to us forthrightly and honestly, do we? And yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is like. He's never read Fifty Shades of Grey. His life is black and white. He is Jesus's best friend. He knows whereof he speaks. And he writes to these churches surrounding him in the area near Ephesus saying, you guys are confused because you've been listening to bad teaching. And frankly, it's getting difficult to determine in your assemblies which of you are saved and which of you are not. It's completely confusing who you should believe and who you should trust. And so he says, let me tell you straight out what God is like. And let me tell you how you can determine whether or not you're really saved. And then I'll give you advice as to how you can have true fellowship with the true God, your heavenly father, who created you. My mother used to read... Bible stories to me before I ran off to kindergarten. My older brothers and sisters, there were seven in our family, uh, had their school start earlier. My kindergarten didn't start till 9 a.m., and so she had time just with me to read Bible stories to me at the kitchen table. And I came to understand at the age of five that I was in those stories, and those sins were mine, and that I needed forgiveness. And I asked her, how can I be saved? And she explained to me, believe in Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sins. Entrust yourself to him. I did, and I was saved. I was very earnest as a child. As a little grade school kid, I was sensitive to the sins I was committing. And I realized they were incongruent. I didn't know that word yet. With, with what God wanted for me. And I began to doubt whether I was really saved because I knew what it meant to be saved and I knew that I was sinning and I knew it was wrong and I began to say, well, maybe I'm not saved. And so I was wondering, had I believed enough? And so I'd pray and I'd say to the Lord, if I haven't believed enough, I'm really, really believing now. They're not gradations of belief like that. It's do you believe or don't you? That's the way John speaks. And then I wondered if I had expressed myself accurately when I asked him to save me. I thought, well, maybe I didn't use the right words. And so I kept praying, trying on more and more precise words saying, if I didn't mean it before, I really mean it now. And if I didn't express it correctly, I'm trying to express it now. And I look back on that and I see my sincerity, but I realize the ridiculousness of what was going on here. What I didn't understand is that sin is incongruent with our life as believers. And we need family forgiveness. And that's why he so clearly tells us in 1 John 1, 9, what you need is to confess your sins to me. You need to agree with me that what you have done is wrong. Ask me for forgiveness and I will restore the family fellowship we have, father to son. That's what he is asking of us. 
when I was a teenager in high school, we had one of these uh, Sunday night sings after the Sunday night meeting, which all the young people went to somebody's house. Kind of like what we did last night uh, over in Lower Pines. And they said, oh, we're going to let you ask questions. And you can ask any question you want, and we'll answer. We were talking about uh, dating relationships. We were at that age where we were teenagers and dating and, and there were things like that. And we were talking about the expression of physical affection. I raised my hand and I said, how far can you go physically in a dating relationship? Somehow they had misunderstood my intentions or they had completely understood my intentions entirely. And rather than answering the question, they said, Oh, Kenny, I am so disappointed in you that you would ever even think such a thought. How could you possibly ask a question as to how physical you could be with a girl in a dating relationship? That's completely the wrong attitude. If you've ever been a teenager, you know how I felt. In front of everybody I knew, all of my friends, they dressed me down because I asked a question that was unaskable. It hurt my feelings, actually. I've never forgotten it. But it is the question that John answers in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, period. And so it's a stupid question. They were right. It's a stupid question to say, how close can I get to committing serious sin and still be okay? I, I've, as an adult, become a little more afraid of standing on the edge of cliffs. I actually, on Vernal Falls, went all the way up to the fence and stood and looked like this right over the fence. But there was a fence was there, at least. But watching my kids go to the edge of the falls just drives me crazy. We took them to the Grand Canyon. They sat on the edge with their feet over the edge. I just had to walk away, just walk away. <laughs> I cannot handle it. And the question should not be, how close can I get to sinning? The question should be, how pleasing can I be to God? Amen. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you because I don't want you to sin at all. And for us as Americans, that makes zero sense. Because we say to ourselves, how many miles over the speed limit can I go before he'll pull me over? <laughs> because we don't say... I plan to stay under the speed limit because that's the law. We say, how much freedom do I have past the actual line of demarcation in the law? We say to ourselves, I want to know how far I can push this. He says, no, I don't want you to sin at all. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And you say, well, what happens if I do? That's my whole problem is I feel guilty when I sin. And it breaks the intimate family relationship of father and son together. What should I do? He says, beautifully, in one nine, confess. And here in 2.2, 2, he says, 2.1 and 2, he says, Jesus Christ is our advocate 
who pleads our case before the Father, who says, I have died to pay for that sin. I took his place. His sin is paid. He is forgiven. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Klasmos, the, the Greek word there, is a powerful word that speaks of how Jesus extinguished God's wrath toward our sin. He satisfied God's wrath by taking his wrath upon himself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that God the Father made him who knew no sin, his son Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ satisfied the outpouring of God's wrath towards sin by paying a debt that we could not pay. It's very similar to the say, I couldn't possibly meet this debt. And someone steps in and pays it in full so that the debt is forgiven. He doesn't want us to sin at all, but if we sin... We can appeal to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not just ours only, but he extends the opportunity for anyone in the world, including Gentiles, to believe in Jesus Christ and to have this same forgiveness. But the question comes again because of the problems they were having in this assembly how can I tell who the good guys are from the bad guys? How can I tell those who are really saved from those who are not? They'd had heretics, false teachers who were in leadership in these assemblies, who'd been lying to them about the person of Christ, who were denying that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, who were telling them that the sins they commit in the body don't actually affect who you are in your spirit, and therefore, you do not need to be careful about sin. Those are lies, lies, lies. And so you will see, as John writes, he gives us a series of tests to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, whether we are actually saved or not. He's got the problem of the heretics who should be disqualified by these tests. He has the problem of the believers who've been tolerating too much sin who should become convicted of their sin and repent because of this and receive family forgiveness by confession. He has people who are in a backslidden state, and he has people who think they're saved when they're not. And consequently, he writes saying, test yourself. See if you pass. I've spent almost my entire adult life as a college prof teaching the Bible to students. Students don't like to be tested. They'll say the most amazing things. They'll say, oh, you're such a wonderful teacher. We just love your teaching. We listen to everything you say. We hear you. You don't need to examine us. <laughs> Why? That long period of that final exam, just teach us some more. We'll listen to you, but don't examine us. Why is that? 
is because no one wants to be held accountable for anything. Listen to how he says we should be examined. This Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, an American immediately says, well, how many of them? The big ones or the little ones? The important ones or the less important ones? That's not what he said. He said, if you keep his commandments, you know that you have relationship with him. If you don't keep your commandments, you should be scared. Americans don't like to be scared. Americans take offense at people that offend them. And so consequently, I want you to live in the first century world for a little while and feel the pressure that the Apostle John places upon you. He's writing in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's asking you to feel a little nervous about the quality of your relationship with God. So cut him some slack. He's from a different place and a different time. Go with him and let him make you nervous. That's how it's written. By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. My favorite prof in college was a wonderful Bible teacher and a horrible tester. Because I was a student. I hated to be tested. We're doing an Old Testament survey. I was studying. A sophomore who already had the class said, hey, you better memorize the age of the patriarchs. I said, he's going to ask how long people lived? And they go, yeah, you better memorize those. I thought he was a sophomore pulling my leg. I thought, like, okay, I'll, Methuselah, I'll memorize Methuselah. I'll memorize three of them. I get to the test. He had a whole section of matching of the ages of people versus the patriarchs. I actually went to his office afterwards because I got a lower grade than I liked on the test. And I said, what in the world were you doing? That's minutia that has nothing to do with anything. I know the patriarchs lived a long time. That's the point. Why would you have me memorize them? He says, separate the A's from the B's. I go, oh. So I took another test from maybe another test, and I kept saying, wait a second. You're expecting me to know everything. The only possible way I could do well in this test is to know everything. I can't know everything in one night. But he's my favorite prof. I love the man. And so I decided, okay, I'll know everything. This will take a week. <laughs> so I memorized everything. And I go in, and I'd ace his test, ace his test. I took every class that he offered. Kept getting A's. I eventually asked, can I be your TA? He let me be his TA. I actually started teaching for him. He gave me my start in teaching and recommended me to teach for the seminary, which gave me my first job as a professional teacher. All because he said, I'm separating the A's from the B's. So when John writes, the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. How does that make you feel? Is God perfecting his love in you? How much do you love God? 
you say like, well, I can't see him, I can't touch him, it's kind of a hard thing to discern, but yeah, I love him. And he says, okay, I'll make it easier on you. Here's some people right around you. They're actual physical people with physical needs right in front of you. How much do you love them? And you say like, well, they don't deserve it. They're not kind. They are not the right kind of people. And he says, that's not the point. You are to love them like I have loved you. And then you will feel secure in your relationship with me because you'll sense the flowing of my love through you to help you love others. If you don't keep my commands, if you don't love your brother, then why should you feel comfortable in your relationship with me? At first, I didn't like the author, John. I I wasn't sure he was my kind of guy. I was more like a Peter sort of person, you know, speak up first, think later. But I've come around, and I've come to think, you know, John has it right. And he's much like my urologist who speaks the truth. He's the one who tells me what I actually need to hear. And he says, if I have loved you, I want you to show that love to others. In fact, to make it even worse, in verse 7, he says, I'm not writing you a new commandment. This is an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. And it's new in the sense that I have given you an empowerment. Now that I have come and returned to my father, I can send the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to empower you so that you have both the desire and the ability to accomplish this. So consequently, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Do what Jesus did. Act like Jesus acted. Serve like Jesus served. Uh, There are 16 of us in our family that are uh, here at the conference this week, and you probably noticed some family resemblances among us. In fact, uh, sometimes you can see what I look like when I was younger. When you see my son or my grandson, you say, like, there he is again. (laughs) We have these funny things about us. One of the things that I tend to do is I put my hands on my hips like this, and my wife hates it because I block her way. We have a small kitchen And she can't get around me. And she goes, stop putting your hands on your hips. And I go like, was I doing that? I I didn't even notice. (laughs) It's just sort of a daughter's thing. We stand like this with our hands on our hips. You watch my kids, they do the same thing. And it's not because they're copying me. If they knew I did it, they would be sure not to do it. (laughs) But they do it because it's genetic. (laughs) Another funny thing we do is when we finish a meal... And we've enjoyed it. And we're just going to sit there and have conversation. We fold our hands and we put them on the table. So many times I'll point out to my daughter, for example, or one of my sons, I'll go like, look what you're doing. You folded your hands and put them on the table. That's genetic. (laughs) He wants us to be like him. He wants us to walk as he walked. He wants us 
to exemplify Jesus Christ. So many people are only worried about getting out of hell. And they have no concept of the joy of what it would be like to live in a sense that our sins are forgiven as we are in constant communication with the Lord, talking to him, confessing our sins to him, expressing gratitude to him for the forgiveness and the covering of our sins, thanking him for the empowerment to appreciate his love and asking him to empower us to love one another as he has loved us. So far, the questions he's asked us are, do I walk in the light as he is in the light? Do I confess my sin? Do I obey his commands? Do I love my brothers? He says, verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And we as Americans say, it can't be that far apart. Give me some middle ground. Because you can't say either I love my brother or I hate my brother. But those are the only two choices he gives us. And consequently, when our heart starts shrinking and we start clinging to our possessions and we say we will not share with each other, we are condemning ourselves by refusing to let the love of Jesus Christ flow through us. Let me give you an old example that has plagued me every day of my life since this time because it showed me of how possessive I am of my possessions. I made it all the way through college with a manual typewriter. A typewriter is like a keyboard <laughs> that has paper coming out that actually physically immediately imprints the letters on the page. When I went off to seminary, we had enough money that we bought an electric typewriter. And it was a very cool one. It had cartridges so you could plug them in and out, and the tape would change color. So you could make it black or, or blue or red. It was the coolest thing ever. A good friend of mine asked, can I borrow your typewriter for the weekend? And here's this funny thing. It's like a typewriter. It's an instrument. It's, it's a machine. And I thought like, well, what if he pushes two keys at the same time? And two little things try to come up. Two little hammers come up and hit each other and they bend. What if he's not careful with it? And I'm thinking like, can I say no? Can I say no? I wanted to say no. But even then, in this tug of war within my soul, I, I felt the impression of the Lord saying, you have no right to say no. Lend him the typewriter. Goes through the weekend. He comes back on Monday, gives me his typewriter and the prayer letter that he had typed on it to send to his supporters because he was full time in evangelism with open air campaigners. 
And I looked at that letter and I said, I almost stood in the way of evangelism because of the selfishness of clinging to my things, caring more about things than I do about people or something as simple as evangelism. And it was so clear to me, and I keep reproving myself often. And in the power of the Spirit, my wife joins in with the Lord, reproving me (laughs) for my selfishness. And it teaches me that God wants me to love my brothers because Christ has loved me. And that's what it means to walk as Jesus walked. And I have no right to say, you're talking in extremes. I want to be a C student. Can you just put me somewhere there in the middle? Well, let me tell you as a college prof what it means when we give you a C. It means you did not impress us. It means you barely passed. It means, yes, you came. Yes, you participated. Yes, you tried. But you really don't know the material very well. Do you really want to be that kind of Christian, a C Christian? Or do you want God's love to fill you and allow you to be a testimony of his love to others? The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If I read this honestly to myself, I feel condemned. But remember, John is writing in such a way as he has the heretics who need to be disqualified. He has Christians who want to be C-level Christians who he wants to rough up. He has backslidden people who really need to get right with the Lord. And he has people who think they're saved when they're not. And so he's got you thoroughly scared. Every once in a while in the book, he slows down and says, hey, I'm not attacking you, but you need to hear the truth. Listen to this paragraph, verses 12 through 14, when he says, I'm not attacking you. Hang in there. You're going to pass. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Hang in there with me, and this will work out if you will hear me and listen to me and go along with me. I'm not attacking you. I'm helping you. And then he says in verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Your homework this afternoon is to talk to the Lord in prayer and ask him through his Holy Spirit to reveal to you ways in which you love the world 
and the things in the world. And then we'll come back tonight and we'll talk about this in more depth. And we'll talk about how we as Americans care so much about fitting into the world that we cannot see how much of the world is in us. And if we're going to take John seriously, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. They are mutually incompatible. And to have the love of the Father in you, it has to displace the love of the world. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we ask on behalf of each of us, by the power of your Spirit, you would reveal to us ways in which we are asking to be C-level Christians and asking just to scoot on by and ignoring what it means to actually walk in the light as you are in the light and to walk as Jesus walked and to walk in a manner in which our fellowship is maintained. Oh, Father, your Son is our advocate. Your Son has successfully paid our penalty for our sin. We pray that we would honor Him in the work that He has done for us by living in a manner that is pleasing to You. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.